Thank you so much, worship team. And I just want to tell you what a blessing it's been because normally when you're in the congregation, you hear the worship songs that the leader has chosen, in this case, Terry and Chuck. And, and then you hear the sermon. But if you know what the sermon is and you realize what they have done with the music, it, it really is amazing. So thank you so much for doing that, even though most of us don't, don't realize how much you do that. And I want to especially thank uh, Pastor Kazar. I just wanted, this would have been his Sabbath. As you know, he stepped in to our lives at a time when our pastoral staff was really a little short and, and had so many burdens on it. And it has been such a blessing to have him minister to us for the past half year. He's off now to Rialto, and, and we certainly wish him well. But that has really been a wonderful thing to be able to have in our church community, to have that kind of a person come in and, and be with us. So I want to thank uh, all of you for um, being here, and I hope you will be willing to participate in an experiment with me. Look around the, the congregations. We're getting back to being the way we normally are in the summer. What a blessing that is. How many of these people could, would you say that you are a safer driver then? Just think of a number. And if you are like most human beings, and we were to total up all those numbers, we would come up with the number 70. I am a safer driver than 70% of these other people. Because that is sort of built into our brains. We think of ourselves a certain way. We think of ourselves as having certain skills and certain competencies. And no matter what is asked a group, the group as a whole, when you average it all out, will come up with an average of, I am better than 70% of other people in terms of telling jokes, doing math, whatever it is. It's set in our brains. This causes certain side effects. One of the side effects is, if I think I am better than 70% of all the rest of you in whatever is being named, then I tend to think that the rest of you probably don't know quite as much as me. And that's certainly true of people in the past. But it has another weird side effect for us as Christians. We know God knows more, is more powerful, is more present than we are. But we tend to think of God as maybe, well, probably the 95th percentile. A little bit more than we are. He is a little bit smarter, a little bit more powerful. And in that way, it blows our mind when we, as the psalmist, look at the picture of what God is really like. And we say, oh my goodness, I had no idea until I think about this. My favorite cartoon at age seven, age seven, <laughs> um, it was Bullwinkle and Rocky. I loved Bullwinkle and Rocky. I quoted it, I memorized it. And this was one of my particular favorite episodes. It's when the, our heroes, the plucky squirrel and the moose, Bullwinkle, find a yacht that's encrusted with these red gemstones and they see a name on it and their mission is to get the yacht back to its owner. 
And I just thought this was hilarious. It was funny, it was engaging. I memorized things from these episodes and followed it along on Sunday morning when it showed for us Adventist kids. And, and I just thought this was the greatest thing in the world and I loved Rocky and Bullwinkle. When I was 16, so sort of nine years later, I was sitting in world lit class with Flora Smith at Tacoma Academy. And I discovered something. There's this Persian poem called The Ruby Yacht of Omar Khayyam. And the dime dropped. And I went, oh, that's what they were talking about all those years ago. I had no idea. And yet, when you realize it at age seven, of course, you have no idea what all the jokes are about. You think you're getting them all but you have no idea. And that's the way it is with God in us. We have no idea a lot of times about what God is doing. And when we do, we go, oh my goodness, that blows my mind that they were thinking that way. So let's explore a little bit my favorite psalm. And when Pastor Darren asked me to do it, he said, pick a psalm anywhere in the last half of the book. And that was good because if Psalms 139, it I, I have had this as my favorite psalm probably since I've discovered that there was a poem called The Rubiata of Omar Khayyam about the same age. And I'll bet you like this too. If you're anything like me, you probably have this underlined in, in your Bible. Psalm 139, and let's start at the beginning because in this, the psalmist is talking about awesomeness of God and how God's awesomeness will blow our minds. He starts off, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I'm sitting down and when I'm rising up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it completely. Do you have relationships in your life where you know what is coming next? At Sabbath lunch uh, in our family, uh, we ate it together, and the kids all would have this game they played with my mother-in-law, waiting for her to say a certain phrase. They called it Sabbath dinner bingo, and they would just wait, and she would have certain phrases she would say, and they would say, do you have that? And it was a big joke, because you knew Mildred was going to say certain things at certain times. And that was the case here with God, too. But he does it even more. And the psalmist says, You hem me in from behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high I cannot attain it. Wow. Oh, my. That blows my mind. So let me tell you about a story that has to do with baseball. Pastor Darren had a baseball story last week. It's baseball season, so we should have this one. And I believe we have the slides this time. This is a picture of a lights-out pitcher, Taylor Haney. He is Chuck and Terry's son. And on this team, the Loma Linda Little League Yankees, he was one of two lights-out pitchers. Now, the phrase lights-out pitcher is used in baseball for a pitcher who is so good that you can turn out the lights as soon as he takes the mound because the game is over. He is going to win. And that was certainly true of not only Taylor, but another pitcher we had. 
And this was a team that had two lights out pitchers for their age. You can see, by the way, in Taylor's statistics that he had such good accuracy. He was striking out three times as many batters as he was walking. And those of you who follow baseball know that's an incredibly good average, even for a major league pitcher, much less to be doing it at this age. So what would happen would be we would face the opposing team and the other coach, a man named Roger Oxley, who, by the way, was the guy who taught Taylor to pitch. Terry told me today that uh, that was his actual personal uh, coach. But he was coaching the other team in this situation. And Taylor would get up there and throw strikes, and basically the, the bottom two-thirds of the order on the other team could not hit him. And I don't mean not get a hit. They couldn't even get a foul ball off of Taylor, and they wouldn't get walks because he was so accurate. And we had two of these guys. They only pitch one, twice a week. They each do it for four, weeks, uh, for four innings. That means the other team's bottom two-thirds of the order never had a chance to even touch the ball all season. So Roger, the other coach, said for them to bunt. And within one day, I think everybody on our team knew that when any of these kids were coming up, Roger was going to call bunt. And so what we started doing on our side was telling our infield defense, come in. It's a bunt. Come in. And they would come in, and the outfield would come in. A couple years later, Roger stopped me, and he said, you know what was annoying about you guys? Is you guys were calling for a bunt defense before I had even decided to have the batter bunt. And I said, well, Roger, you had them bunt every time. <laughs> Uh, we were worried that one day he would cross us up and they'd get a hit and we'd lose an infielder, but uh, he never did. He always had them bunt, and so all the time we knew exactly what he was going to do before he had even decided to do it. Is that safe for God to have that degree of knowledge about you and me? Think of all the things you and I think about, the things that we don't talk about, that we hope we never say in our sleep, and God knows that. And yet the psalmist seems comfortable to say, yes, you know every single thought I have. You are omniscient. But it's amazing that you still love me and I still count on you loving me and thank you for doing that. In your omniscience, you still love me even though you know everything there is to know about me. And wow, that blows my mind. So God knows me. And God also goes with me. In the next verse, chapter, in verse 7, where can I go to get away from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If, you if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the furthest limits of the sea, you're still there. Now, one of the things that the ancient people didn't really conceive of us that they didn't really understand God being everywhere. For them, their God was the God of Israel or the God of Syria. And if you got too far away from home base, your God was probably not going to be able to be as powerful as you. This is what gives us the story of Jonah. You remember when Jonah was told by God to do something he didn't want to do, he said, I will flee as far away as possible to Spain to get away from God, because maybe there God can't find me or do anything for me. The same thing applies in the story of Naaman. You remember when Naaman wanted to worship God, he asked Elisha, could you give me two mule loads of dirt from Israel? 
Why did he want dirt? He wanted it to take it back to Damascus so that he could worship the God of Israel on Israel's soil. So for the ancient people in this time, the idea that God could be everywhere was quite foreign. But if you were David, who had experienced living in the Philistines' territory, or if you were the exiles who returned back to Judah after being in Babylon, you came back with the realization that even when I was not in Israel, God was still with me. God was still leading me, even in Babylon. God was still protecting me, even when I tried to run away from him. So the psalmist says, if I take the wings of the morning and settle at the furthest limits of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light around me become night, kind of like in a movie theater. You know, you were probably told at one point in your life that your guardian angels don't go into theaters with you. The darkness is not dark to you, and the, night is not as br- and the night is as bright as the day, for the darkness is as light to you. You can run like Jonah. You may be going someplace that you feel like is a place you should not go. Maybe you're even running away from God. The psalmist suggests that even in all of those situations, God is with you in Babylon, in the movie theater, running away, trying to lead you back, just like he did Jonah, just like he did the exiles from from Babylon. And when you realize that God's omnipresence is meant to win you back, even when you're running away from him, you think, oh, wow. That blows my mind, that God loves me that much. So God knows me. God goes with me. And now we get to embryology. God grows with me. And, and I'll have to say that in the first service, I totally did not realize or think that Chris Church was, in the, was around. Uh, there's somebody who would actually know the embryology of the ear. But um, we, will, we will come to that and... Uh, <laughs> Here is the psalmist talking about embryology, and we'll get to the ear. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. I know you, and I know very well my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, God was acting on that, says the psalmist. And he is going to go on and talk about how God intimately forms us, makes us. What a powerful God that is who can make us. But I will call your attention to the ear, and not the part of the ear that you hear with, and not even the part of the ear that uh, senses your direction or which end is up or whether you're spinning. This is the outer ear, the external ear, which dentists and physicians in embryology class call the pinna. This is how the pinna is formed. It starts with six little hills on the neck of the embryo. And then those six hills fuse 
and become the front and the back of the ear. And what's amazing about this for neurologists anyway is that that means this little part of your ear is actually innervated by a whole bunch of different nerves that come from all over the place. The front half is innervated by the trigeminal nerve, this third division of the trigeminal nerve, so that's what you would expect. That's what gives face its sensation. The back part is actually coming from the neck, C2 and 3. And in the middle is contributions from the facial nerve and the vagus nerve. Hey, this is a complicated little thing that sits on the sides of our head. What's it good for? Joy told us one thing that it was good for. It caught Joy's tears when she was crying. But other than that, it doesn't help you hear. It doesn't help you know which direction you're going. At best, it holds up your sunglasses and your surgical mask. And yet, God made the pinna in such an intricate fashion. However he did it, it's an amazing feat of bioengineering. Don't you think that a God who can make a structure as mildly not particularly useful come from this kind of an arrangement? How powerful must he be? Wow. And he goes on from there. Not only is the psalmist thinking about how he was made, he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them had as yet existed. God was knowing his entire future. How weighty are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? It blows my mind. Oh, wow. God is so much more powerful in his omnipotence than I would normally believe. I try to count them, your thoughts, and they are more than the sand. And I come to the end, the end of my life, all the days of my life. I find that you are still there waiting to meet me, ready to be with me at the very end. So throughout the first three quatrains, or the first three stanzas of this hymn, the psalmist has been calling us to the experience of the awesomeness of God. What an amazing emotion it is. But now, because we're human, our emotions sometimes change. And sometimes they change very quickly. And so God flows with our emotions. Tish Harrison Warren, who's a Episcopalian minister, uh, said in an article in Christianity Today, she's comparing our human emotions with a river, a river that can overflow its bank and be destructive. How can we remain alive to our internal life without being washed downstream whenever we feel, by whatever we feel from moment to moment? And how as Christians do we bring our whole selves, including our emotional lives, before God? The Psalms dare tell us that the, the Psalms dare us to tell God our deepest needs, longings, resentments, pain, grief, and joys, and in doing so we learn to admit the truth about ourselves. 
One of the things that studying the Psalms always does for me, and I hope it has for you, is to realize that these prayers that were prayed thousands of years ago have every possible emotion I have ever felt, and yet they're being prayed to God, about God, complaining to him, but always bringing whatever emotion was there to God. And so the Psalms can reflect our joy, our fear, our anger, our contentment, our depression, the awe we feel from seeing God as he really is. But how about this emotion? Outrage. Oh, that you would kill the wicked, O God, and that the bloodthirsty would depart from me. Those who speak of you maliciously and lift themselves against you uh, for evil, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. Do you have anyone that you are outraged against? Let me give you some of my favorites. Terrorists. Revolutionaries. People trying to overthrow the order. Administrators. Do you hate administrators like Mr. Riddle? How often do you say administration just doesn't know what it's doing. And it's even worse for conference officials, right, Rob? <laughs> what is the conference doing? Okay, we certainly know all about that. We call them names. They're rioters and fascists and Nazis and communists and perverts and the GC and pastors and students and secular humanists. These are people who are working not against me, but against God. And therefore, my outrage is totally justified in defending God's honor. Oh, that feels good. I can really be outraged at people. Let me tell you somebody I was outraged about in 2002, and you might have been too. His name was Osama bin Laden. Were you outraged against him? There was somebody who was evil, the representation of evil, who killed people maliciously, who laughed about it, who was clearly attacking everything I believed in. And in 2002, my colleague, Brad Cole, who is a neuroanatomy teacher here and a neurologist at the VA, was holding an evangelistic series in Portland, Oregon. And here was the picture he was using to advertise his evangelistic series. And in the picture, you see Jesus with Angela Merkel, uh, Nicholas Sarkozy, Kofi Annan, and then on the other side, George Bush, Prime Minister Singh of India, and President Chiang of China. Hey, those last two aren't even Christians. The last guy is an atheist. Is Jesus watching their feet? But that's not what got Dr. Cole's poster in trouble. This was actually taken down from uh, shopping malls in Portland. I don't know. Do you, do you, uh, we have some guests from Portland. Do you guys remember this at all? No? <laughs> it was, they took these down because it offended people. And it offended people because it pictures Osama bin Laden 
about ready to have his feet washed by Jesus. That was outrageous. What a sacrilege. What an unpatriotic thing to do. The question for you, of course, is, do you worship a God who would wash Osama bin Laden's feet? Well, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, had some advice to us about enemies. And remember the psalmist said, I hate my enemies, I hate your enemies, with a perfect hatred, a complete hatred. It's a total, unabashed hatred. And here's Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount saying to us, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Therefore, be perfect, complete, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is calling us to move from our perfect hatred that, at things that outrage us and move to looking at our enemies the way God looks at them. How does God look at Osama bin Laden or Jiang Zemin or any of those other world leaders? Those are his children. Well, you say, I'm only human. I can't possibly muster that degree of love for the other people, my enemies. Jesus has a suggestion for you. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Why does he say to pray for those enemies who persecute me? Well, remember, in order for them to be enemies, I have been calling them names. I have been calling them Nazis or communists or terrorists because that dehumanizes them. That makes them less than me, and I can feel better than them. The minute I start praying for my enemies, they stop being administration and start being Al and Rob and Dick and Carrie. And I realize that those of my enemies are God's children. I can't dehumanize people I pray for. Now that was good to see, thanks to Jesus. Did our psalmist, who lived hundreds of years before Jesus, also, was he also able to see that? In the last two verses, the psalmist suddenly comes back from his outrage and says, enemies, oh my, search me, O oh God, and know my heart, Test me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The Hebrew word here that is translated thoughts turns out to be a different word than has been translated thoughts in the rest of this chapter. This word thoughts actually comes from the root anxiety. 
And so really that sentence reads, search me, O God, and know my anxieties. Because it's when I get anxious that I want to make enemies who are below me. And then the other word is wicked. Once again, wicked has appeared previously in this psalm. But this Hebrew word is different than wicked and evil previously. This wicked comes from the Hebrew word for hurtful. And so when the psalmist asks God, look into me, see if I have any anxieties that you need to do away with, and see if there's anything hurtful in me, and then lead me in the way that you're going to. The psalmist feels the same as you and I. He is in awe of God's awesomeness when he thinks about how omniscient God really is, how omnipresent God really is, and how omnipotent God really is. But he also is like you and I when he realizes God already knows about my anxieties. God already knows who I consider outrageous enemies of me. And he still accepts me and loves me. But he doesn't want me to stay with my outrage. He asks me to follow him as he goes forward to make me more like him and realize my enemies are actually God's children. Father, we bow before your awesomeness. You are truly an awesome God for all the things that you can do, but also because you managed to love us and care for us and want the best for us, despite everything you know about us. Thank you for being our God and be with us this next week. Amen.